It's the 2nd of August 1926, five nautical miles off the coast of Lesbos in Greece. It's night time and a French ship, the SS Lotus, is cruising towards the destination of Constantinople, now Istanbul. The first officer is keeping watch, but what he doesn't know as the ship speeds through the dark waters is that there's a Turkish ship dead ahead. I'm Melissa Caston, this is Just Cases. My co-host James Patterson is with me. Hi James. Hi Melissa. We're joined today by Douglas Guilfoyle. He's a professor of international law here at Monash Law School. We're going to head back to those dark waters off the coast of Turkey and Greece. What lies ahead for the French ship is not only a naval disaster, it's an entire legal case that will change the course of international relations for the next century. Douglas, back to that lookout post for the French ship, the Lotus. The French first officer who was keeping guard, who was he? Well, we don't know an awful lot about him. I mean, he has the uh, name uh, Lieutenant Demont. He was the first officer of the steam packet, uh, the Lotus. But the more important thing was he was the watchkeeper at that point at night. And what's the significance of being the watchkeeper at that point? So you are essentially responsible under international law for avoiding collisions. And similarly, the uh, sort of officer on deck uh, on the Bozkurt, the uh, Turkish vessel um, that was hit by the Lotus, the officer on deck at that point was the captain. Okay, so you have two people whose job it is essentially their first job <laughs> in a real you way. You had one waters. job. Yeah, you have you have one job as the you know, as the watch officer at night or the captain of the vessel, and that's to stop your vessel from colliding with others or stop it running into things. This is a fairly basic duty. That line does actually, that entire meme does come from this case in the 1920s. <laughs> that's a little known fact. You had one job. Um, but in any event, um, the thing that's unusual about sort of collision cases at sea is that it really requires two parties to have both gotten it wrong. Uh, so the cause of a collision is normally going to require both vessels and the person in charge to have done something wrong. So what happens next between these two ships? Okay, so they've collided at sea uh, and the Turkish vessel begins to sink. Demont does what he should do. He mobilises essentially a rescue effort aboard the Lotus. They manage to get uh, 10 of the crew of the sinking Turkish vessel, um, including the captain, out of the water, but eight go down with the ship. That's what we have. We have a rescue situation. We have a disaster at sea. We have eight Turkish nationals dead, arguably as the result of the negligence of Monsieur Demont or the joint negligence of Demont and the captain uh, of the Bozkurt, uh, Mr. Hassan Bey. And what, what about these two people, Mr. Hassan Bey and Demont? What happens to them? How do they come out of this? The Lotus proceeds to Constantinople, its next port of call, and at that point... Um, both Bay and Demont are arrested. They're charged with manslaughter by negligence. They are put on trial in Constantinople. And the legal proceedings take about a month. That sentence comes down on 15 September. And the French lieutenant, he gets 80 days in prison and a fine of 22 Turkish pounds. And the Turkish captain gets a comparable sentence. Now, you think about it. You've just by negligence killed eight foreign nationals 
and you're sentenced to 80 days prison and a fine. You know, realistically, this looks pretty lenient, but the French go through the roof. Right? Diplomatic <laughs> correspondence is entered into. They're saying that the Turks had absolutely no right to assert criminal jurisdiction over this case. It actually becomes a major diplomatic incident. And this thing about criminal jurisdiction, I'm sure we're going to go into a fair bit of depth about, um, no pun intended, but... The, um, it's actually really hard to avoid puns when you talk about law of the sea. You suddenly <laughs> realise how many nautical metaphors are just littered through the English language. But anyway. If you can make sure that throughout this conversation you drop at least one pun per sentence, then right. that would be greatly appreciated. We'll see, we'll see what pun per minute ratio we can reach. Yep. <laughs> so this occurred in international waters, did it not? Yep, so it, it occurred on the high seas. Okay, so it wasn't in Turkish water? No. Okay. Was there any, any reaction, apart from the French reaction, which was outrage... Do you know how it was regarded in Turkey at the time? I'm not sure how it was received, as it were, by the general population, but certainly by Turkish elites, this was seen as um, something of a kind of litmus test. And uh, I mean that in the sense that Turkey is a relatively new country at this stage. So we're talking 1926. It's only emerged from, as it were, the ashes of the Ottoman Empire as a result of the peace treaties, which are quite important to the case at um, the end of the First World War, and particularly the 1919 um, Peace Treaty of Lausanne. And part of the kind of elite approach to the case is informed by the fact that for literally centuries, from the 1500s through to 1919, you had what was called uh, the capitulatory regime or the consular jurisdiction regime. And boiling that right down, what it meant was that foreigners in the Ottoman Empire who were uh, protected by these treaties with European powers were subject to different jurisdictional arrangements, and but particularly disputes between foreigners could not be heard by Turkish courts. Is now, that meaning then that, say, if a French company was operating in the Ottoman Empire and there was a Belgian company operating and they had a big dispute that those countries' judicial system could operate to resolve it within the e Ottoman Empire itself. Ex exactly. So the okay. civil courts of the Ottoman Empire would have had no jurisdiction over that dispute. Okay. It's like an expat-free law zone, really. Right, right. Okay. So can we turn to the Lotus case itself and, right. and explain to us a little bit about how that case came about and, and, yep. and what it meant? Okay, so... This is a sort of fascinating kind of footnote to legal history in that the case was heard before the Permanent Court of International Justice. And the Permanent Court, or the PCIJ, was, as it were, the International Court of Justice for the League of Nations. So it's the first sort of truly international world court. And the Permanent Court of International Justice on its face is only open to members of the League of Nations. Mm. But Turkey's still really new and hasn't joined the League of Nations yet. So the only way France can bring the case before the Permanent Court is if Turkey agrees. So they actually lodge a special written agreement with the Permanent Court called a compromis, which sounds a lot in English like compromise, which is kind of what it is. And they set out what the questions of law they want the court to resolve are. And that boils down to essentially in exercising jurisdiction over uh, Lieutenant Demont, has Turkey violated any rule of international law? That's the agreed phrasing, which also becomes important because it actually puts France in the position of having to say, what is the rule Turkey has violated? Mm. So, so France, if I can get this straight, 
France is saying, and with 500 years of more or less bad blood between them, France is saying, you as a nation and as a new nation, one that's not necessarily recognised as being equal to us, can't um, assert your criminal law over a Frenchman when this collision has happened in international waters. Yep, that, right. that's exactly the core of it. So okay. this teases out in a couple of different ways. So there's the question of what is the law that applies to a collision on the high seas? There's a question, a more general question, when can states attach consequences in criminal law to events occurring outside their territory? And then there's a question about whether, and the, the advocate for Turkey, who we'll get to in a moment, actually puts it in these terms. He actually has this wonderful line, and I, it's delivered in French. The whole case was conducted in French. And <laughs> it I, I must won't, sound so much nicer I, that I, way. I won't, I won't go for it and add a naval pun. Ah, uh, we will see. But in, in, fr in my very bad French accent, what he essentially says, like the sort of his winning line uh, in the case is, existe-t-il une différence entre la souveraineté turque et la souveraineté française? So is there a difference between Turkish sovereignty and French sovereignty? So what he's actually doing is using international legal argument and the fundamental assumption that sovereign states are equal to skewer <laughs> the French argument directly, like to cut through every other argument the French bring up. He just says, this is what it comes down to. Uh, and the advocate in that case was uh, Mahmoud Essat. Um, and Essat's an interesting figure himself. Like he is a radical Turkish nationalist. He's in Ataturk's first cabinet. Now, these are people who... As I understand it, for them, one of the problems with the Ottoman Empire was that in contemporary terms, it was too multicultural, right? It was too many nations under one umbrella. And what they want is basically Turkey for the Turks. But the way they're going to get Turkey for the Turks, the way they're going to get kind of a protected sovereignty is through international law. And at this time, to be fully sovereign means meeting the sort of quote-unquote European standard of civilization. Mm. So while on the one hand, you know, Essatz is this fiery nationalist, like at the time the case is heard, he's in his early 30s, he's in cabinet for the first independent Turkey, and he holds, you know, uh, I think he holds his doctorate from Switzerland. Like this is a nationalist, but also an internationalist. And the French lead advocate, Jules Bastevon, uh, he's an interesting character too, because he later goes on to become the president of the PCIJ. Like, so not only a judge, but he's the, on the trajectory. He's on the trajectory. So he's already like a. Uh, he was a French treaty law expert at um, the Versailles peace treaty negotiations. So wow. he wasn't directly involved in negotiating peace with the Turks, but he was part of mm. the General European Peace Conference. He's the, at this time international law is not a major subject. In French universities, he holds one of the only chairs in international law in Paris. He goes on to join the foreign ministry. He becomes a judge of the Permanent Court of International Justice and eventually the president of the Permanent Court of International Justice. Like, so this is a, to, to use the, the language of British politics, this is a big beast, right? <laughs> and he's 10 years older than this, you know, scrappy Turkish nationalist with his Swiss doctorate. And so his advocacy is very technical and very condescending. <laughs> so Bastivant's 
I mean, he had a number of arguments, but perhaps the two most important ones were, uh, first, Turkey could not have extraterritorial jurisdiction in a case like this because the Treaty of Lausanne denied it to them. And I'll come back to that. He had a very technical treaty interpretation argument. And his second argument was that uh, essentially asserting jurisdiction over events beyond your territorial frontier was simply impermissible. But essentially, Bastivant's argument is rooted in this idea that Turkey is not an equal power. They don't have full sovereignty. They have sovereignty to the degree the Europeans let them under the peace treaty. And you could say that that would be quite a hard argument to sustain to an international court today because you can't have gradations or kind of, you know, divisible versions of what a country's sovereignty can be. You either have it or you don't have it. You don't have a lesser version right? because you're a lesser country. Right. So, and, and so this is the use of international law for ESAT because, you know, formal equality is a really powerful principle in dispute resolution. Uh, so even if you're not substantively equal, France is clearly far more powerful than Turkey at this time, formal equality allows you to step up and make this argument. No, you don't get to treat us like this. But this brings us to the, the, the French second argument, which was, well, even if the ordinary rules of international law apply, they prohibit the extraterritorial um, application of your criminal law, or alternatively, there's a special rule in the event of collisions on the high seas, which means that only uh, the flag state can exercise disciplinary or criminal jurisdiction. What's the flag state? Uh, so the flag state is um, the easiest answer. It's not a complete answer, but the easiest answer is to say, um, if you're sailing a ship on the high seas and it is registered in France, then France is the flag state and French law will apply on the boat. Is this like that thing where you hear about aeroplanes, that if someone dies on board an aeroplane midair, whoever own, whichever country owns or <laughs> registers that Did plane... Did you just make that up? No, this is, this yep. is true, isn't it? So, They're ruled to have died in that country? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, if, if if I do make a lot of things up, but I'm pretty if, sure if the that aircraft. I have to why are we that. talking about if the, this? I mean, if the aircraft is outside the territorial jurisdiction of any state, when it's in the airspace over a country, it's in that country. Um, but yeah, it's the same. It's the same principle. So all kinds of things are subject to a kind of flag state principle. The main ones are ships and aircraft, but also um, space satellites. Um, can I come back to you, Doug? Extraterritoriality. What do we mean by that? Right. So the easiest way to explain this is the old um, criminal law uh, lecture theatre thought experiment, which is, okay, imagine an international border. A stands on one side, B stands on the other. A shoots a gun across the border and kills B. Who has jurisdiction? Mm. And the answer is both states. The state where the criminal act is commenced and the state where the effects are felt So this is where the French argument starts to collapse when you take the analogy and apply it on the high seas. They were saying only the ship where the offence occurred, only that flag state can prosecute. Therefore, only we can prosecute Demont. And the Turks reply, no, no, no. (laughs) Same as if a gun was fired across a border. On our ship, Mm. people were injured and died. Mm. We have territorial jurisdiction as well. You can't, as it were, localise territorial jurisdiction to only one ship or the Mm. other. They are both implicated. So is the Turkish argument that it is both, or the Turkish are trying to say it is just on the 
Turkish ship. The, the, tur- the Turkish okay. argument is it's both. Both are equally valid, and therefore we could prosecute. And that's the only question that's been put to the court, is, you know, did Turkey have a right to prosecute? Or, in fact, really the question that's been put to the court, where France made its case harder than it had to be, was in prosecuting, has Turkey breached any rule of international law? Okay, so what was the decision of the international court on that? Uh, On the actual point at issue, which is not the point for which the case is actually famous amongst lawyers, Mm. the court simply held that uh, you could assimilate the events on ships on the high seas to territory. They didn't say ships were territory. Mm. They just said you could treat them as if they were territory. Mm. The status was no worse, no better, and therefore the events could occur on both vessels. And therefore, Turkey was perfectly entitled to prosecute. So, so uh, Doug, you okay. said that th- that was the outcome, of the decision in the case, but you also said the case is famous for a different reason. Right. So the passage the court's judgment is famous for, which is said to give rise to the Lotus Principle, is this. So the PCIJ literally says, international law governs relations between independent states. The rules of law binding upon states therefore emanate from their own free will as expressed in conventions or by usages generally accepted as expressing principles of law and established in order to regulate the relations between these coexisting independent communities or with a view to achieving their common aims. Here's the really critical sentence. Restrictions upon the independence of states cannot therefore be presumed. What's the significance of that quite simple statement? So that simple statement appears to lay out a proposition, everything is permitted unless it's prohibited. <laughs> I love that rule. <laughs> well, it'd be a great, it, it would be a great rule, but you know, in terms of an international legal system where other states exist, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Ah, can, can, can we just like explain to yep. the slow so, person what this means? So, well, te- teasing it out, I would say what it means is... A court cannot presume limitations upon the sovereignty of states. A court must start from the proposition that states have unlimited competence, which corresponds with this idea of the national sovereign. So the, the principle in, say, British common law, parliament can make or unmake any rule whatever. Parliament can extend its laws to the entire world. No, no one from within the United Kingdom can question the will of Parliament. However, from an external perspective, an international law perspective, logically, equal sovereigns can only have supreme power to the extent that every other state does. So the existence of other states must limit what sovereignty can do. If other sovereigns exist and are formal equals, then actually sovereign power can't be unlimited. So What the Lotus case is famous for is a statement that every subsequent case and textbook goes to town disagreeing with. Here's the thing I particularly love is the court did not apply the Lotus principle in the Lotus case. Mm. So is that just a throwaway line that they've just chucked in there? Well, they're trying, as I say, they were caught at this sort of turning point in reasoning about international law. Do you start from the point of view that you should, that sovereignty in international law should mean what it does in national constitutional mm. law? Or do you need a different conception of sovereignty based on many states being formally equal? Now, again, think of Turkey's position. They are newly 
a state. They are newly sovereign. This is a period after the First World War where actually international law is going from being just a kind of European club to having to have more relationships with non-European states as if they were formal equals. Mm. Whereas, you know, the norm in the past had been things like the capitulatory regimes, unequal treaties, gunboat diplomacy. So the idea of meeting these other states on the footing of formal equals is a new thing that mm. has to be dealt with. So what happened to Monsieur Demon and his Turkish counterpart? counterpart? Did uh, they serve the 80 days? I believe he did, um, although he, he certainly wasn't in any kind of pretrial detention. He was given bail until the case was actually heard. So I think he served the 80 days, but it was only the 80 days. It wasn't 80 days plus pretrial detention. And I hope detention. he coughed up that £22 as well. Well, you know, well the, the second question in the whole case was, you know, if Turkey had violated rule of international law, what compensation was due to Mr Demont? Uh, but that question didn't have to be answered because it was found that Turkey hadn't violated international law. And But sort of coming back to the personalities of the advocates, one of the interesting things is um, Dr Esat, the Turkish advocate, was so pleased that he won the case and so pleased that he won over the French, he added an extra surname to his title. So he took the name of the sunk Turkish boat. Uh, um, I don't know, that's a bad omen. It was, one, wouldn't, one might think it wasn't the best of omens. Um, so he, he went on to have a double-barrelled name. He went, the yep. French counterpart went on to be the president of the permanent court. Yep, uh, went on to a long, <laughs> illustrious career despite the setback of losing this particular case. Douglas Gilfoyle, thank you very much for joining us on Just Cases today. Thank you very much for having me. It's been terrific. And thanks, James. Thanks, Melissa. I'm going to go and have a little lie down. <laughs> You've got an international law headache now. <laughs> I really do. This is Just Cases, the backstory to the biggest court cases you've never heard of. And if you liked our podcast, please rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts and leave us a review. We'd love to hear your thoughts. See you next time. Bye.